Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we specialize in helping clinicians in private practice become the clinicians they want to be. We have one-on-one and group mentoring for those who value coaching and guidance on how to apply a BPS approach to their clinical practice and how to manage the challenges that come along when working with humans who have pain. So if interested, reach out at tkex.org and join in our Facebook discussion group. Today, I am very excited to welcome from across the globe, Marcus Blumensat. He's a massage therapist and educator from Canada with a wealth of experience working with elite athletes. We're going to dive into MSK, musculoskeletal care, exercise prescription, and perhaps some of the solutions to the common barriers that we face when trying to apply a BPS approach in clinic. So Marcus, thank you so much for making the time for us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. And uh, as we were chatting before the podcast, there seems to be a growing culture in BC, Victoria, where just every massage therapist seems to be on the right page and evidence-based. It's quite a culture you're, you're brewing. So I don't know if it's in the water or any cultural, contextual ideas, but we've had a lot of people from your area. So we appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. And like I said, a lot of it has to do with how we're governed and regulated. So it just breeds a little bit more evidence base. And, and some of us, the like educators are pushing the associations and stuff to move more evidence based even than they are. So yeah, it's a lovely movement to be a part of for sure. Amazing. And it takes leaders such as yourself to, to push that message. So it's inspiring from yeah. everyone around the world. So yeah. appreciate your work. And the famous question we ask all, I guess, or infamous question, depending on your perspective, what's your story, mate? What's my story? Um, I was just, you know, growing up, I was just a sports enthusiast. Uh, if I wasn't playing sports outside, I was laid out on the couch watching sports. Um, you know, and for me, what that did sort of like when I was 10 years old, I knew how long every orthopedic injury took to rehab um you know at nine i could tell you how long an acl took to rehab etc and uh basically i just that love of sports led me into wanting to do something with the human body and in my career and and so that sort of led me down the path where i've ended up in in the end yeah so and i'm still a sport enthusiast Uh, when i was uh, in my prime i played for the national rugby team for canada at every age level um up to including under 23. And then at that point, uh, I moved on and uh, started seeing what else was out there. But yeah, so that's essentially, you know, where I came from. Uh, I'm sure a lot of clinicians can relate to the the uh, wannabe sports star kind of uh, journey from childhood and adolescence growing up and trying to all have all the sports and, and represent and aim towards that uh, higher level and then we get a lot of injuries and then we get into rehab and we yeah. become rehab professionals it's, it's a common story oh man yeah and like I blew uh, I've torn both my ACLs had them both reconstructed um, yeah so I've been through it all as an athlete and uh, so yeah no and, and I think that helps too as a professional having gone through a lot of it yeah I can definitely empathize with the the journey and the long process that it takes and um, I'm with your educational uh, journey, what was it like? And uh, so you did a kinesiology degree. Tell us a bit more about that journey. Yeah, undergrad, I did kinesiology. And uh, 
sort of specialize in biomechanics as it were. And at the same time, I got certified as a personal trainer while in school. So I started doing some training. Um, yeah, and then basically finished school and was doing exercise rehab uh, with people as a kinesiologist and didn't feel satisfied. Uh, and then so I looked into basically physio chiropractic and massage therapy and you'll laugh at the depth of my decision making I didn't have to move cities if I went into training for massage therapy <laughs> so I just did that and uh, yeah I've been practicing for 16 years and uh, obviously everyone within a profession uh, can practice quite differently you know one chiropractor can practice very differently than another you know and same thing goes for me I'm very different than the majority of traditional registered massage therapists and uh, yeah and then also I I went through training in Canada you can become a certified sport massage therapist and um, when I did that it took about five years when I finished that I think I was one of 34 in the country um, and what that allows you to do is go as part of the core medical team to Olympic Games and so yeah that was another thing I did ended up going to three Summer Olympic Games, and so those were great. That would be Beijing, London, and Rio, and those were all amazing experiences. And uh, yeah, in between the games, obviously, I was working with athletes, mainly with rowing over the years, and uh, that sort of takes me to where I am now. And uh, now it's more uh, probably much like yourself, just an insatiable appetite for papers and you know podcasts, courses, etc. And so just continual lifelong learning now. Amazing that uh, forever a student, that curiosity keeps us improving and learning. Uh, I really love the that you you found that you were kind of missing something. You wanted to learn a bit more, so you expanded your your scope with the massage therapy um, qualifications, and then you went into the elite athlete space. What was that space like? I, I hear a lot of um, difficulties and unique challenges with that context of. Um, we talk about patient expectations and I imagine athletes would have their own expectations to, that you need to navigate and work with. What was that like? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, and also working, you're always working usually in a multi-practitioner setting. So there's lots of people with different roles. So you're, you're much more, I would say, siloed when you work in elite athletes because you're looked at as having one little specialty as opposed to say in my private practice I would do a lot more um, you know and expectations are always a part of it I think it, a lot of healthcare practitioners wouldn't want to hear me say this but I think in the end what we think we're doing to help these athletes isn't really what's helping them uh, as it were so um, I think the main thing I learned and brought in a positive way was a, to not get in the way at, and to not say anything that would mess with the psychology of the athletes. And, you know, I wasn't putting fear in them by saying, oh, this is really tight or like, oh, geez, like this is out of alignment. You know, any of these sorts of things, you know, it's this whole do no harm. I was just encouraging them and there to make them, you know, oh, yeah, you've, you know, everything looks good. Go get them, Tiger, you know, that sort of thing. Just being there as support and, you know, not to say that we didn't deal uh, and deal with, you know, serious injuries and stuff. But uh, for the most part, you're there more, more as support, really, in my mind, and, and a lot of it's psychological. So I think the sports psych end of it is, is important. So if an athlete comes to you and thinks that, 
you know, getting something massaged is going to be all the difference, even though you know it's it's not probably going to be. Uh, you do it, and because it's their expectations, and you're just trying to keep them sort of happy and thinking they're getting what what they want. And yeah, and and a big part I saw too is sometimes therapists didn't last long because they were creating dependency by athletes on them saying, Oh, you need, you need to come get me to do this before you head out for your final uh, heat, you know, that sort of thing. And so, you know, honestly, the creating that dependency it, it's not the smartest thing, right? Cause what if, what if that practitioner is sick and, isn't available and the athletes like ah i needed marcus to do that thing that thing he does before my final like i'm and then they go out to their you know final heat and they're they're nervous and all shaken so um you know little things like that but uh overall really fun group to work with i think mainly because they're so motivated and like everybody you're working with is trying to be the best at what they do in the world so managers uh, therapists athletes coaches everyone is so driven it's it's a real energy to be around and feed off of so i really enjoyed that aspect of it it's so cool it's um that environment that context that just focuses on improving performance so everyone's aligned with the same goal and it's like that whatever it takes attitude and and there might be some funky perhaps unhelpful beliefs along the journey, but then you realize in the grand scheme of things, it's just like one small part. There's so many other factors in the outcomes and the experiences that people have. And, and if we can uh, uh, also recognize what we choose not to do and we're not making, you know, their, those unhelpful beliefs worse or we're not adding fuel to that fire and that dependence. Um, if someone comes in with a helpful belief, we can work, roll with that. And we know in the back of our mind, there's probably more non-specific contextual effects going on that have nothing to do with what, you know, they think is going on, but we're still helping them get to their goals. Is that generally? You got it. You yeah. got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, well said. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, and what got you into, so from, from that context, um, and you mentioned you're going into, into your own private practice and now into the education space as well. What was that? journey and transition like between those stages yeah I think that was like one of the funnest parts of my career is is the journey that transition and you know really it came down to I was a a very hardcore sort of kinesiopathological model like quality movement was everything symmetry was everything and and I was trying to change everybody's posture I was trying to make everyone's biomechanics perfect and and then you know it hit me and my wife used to run, uh, you know, pretty high level. And I'd stand at the finish line sort of waiting for her to finish. And I'd I'd see the top 10 people finish. And I'm always looking at biomechanic. And, you know, three out of the 10, I'd be drooling and be like, oh, no wonder you're in the top 10. Like, beautiful. And then the other seven, I'd be like, oh, terrible. Like, I could make you so much faster. You know, and then one year, it just hit me. And I was like, wait a sec. Those seven people are pain-free and they're finishing in the top 10 of a semi-professional race. So why, you know, like, why is this a problem? You know, and then so then my mind started shifting. And I, there was one woman in my practice had a severe S-curve scoliosis. And, you know, I was in school. It's like, oh, you lengthen this and strengthen that and da-da-da. But then here she was, never had any pain. 
And she was one of the fastest age group runners in middle distance in our nation in Canada. And so just kind of like, wait a sec. I thought this was a problem. And so I really started doubting it. And, and I was always open to changing my bias. And I was started seeing these world real world changes. And then I took one course. It was Greg Lehman's Reconciling uh, Biomechanics with Pain Science. And it was like, bam, all the, all the objective evidence to back up all these thoughts I'd been having. And him standing there, one of the world's best continuing educators saying, you know, this, the, all these thoughts I'd had, I'm like, oh, hallelujah. And, and really, that was a massive, massive tipping point in my career. And from that point on, and that got me into objective evidence. I just, to that point, I hadn't really dove into it. And I just went deep. I went deep at that point on. And uh, I haven't looked back. And it became a hobby and a passion. And eventually, I had this knowledge base and was like, wow, there's so much knowledge out here that isn't being used it's it the way the majority of healthcare practitioners are practicing it doesn't doesn't look like what the evidence is saying you know um and it just struck me so hard i was like i got to do something about this and i just put fingertips to keyboard and and started developing a continuing education course you know two-day course just like greg's that inspired me and i'm like i got to get this information out I got to do my job to make the world better, to improve musculoskeletal health care. And uh, yeah, it was fun. It was a big project. I loved it. And, and I, I just launched it about a year ago and it's going so well. And it feels so good to get this information out and to see how people are absorbing it. Like, ah, oh, you know, this is great. Like we should all be, you know, taking this in. So, um, yeah, it was a cool journey. It was, I was total on the other end of the spectrum of like, oh, you got to be symmetrical and biomechanics is everything. And clarify, biomechanics always matters. Always. It's just one part. That's all. So anywho, uh, yeah, that was sort of my journey, that transition to educating. And, and now I'm, I'm practicing a little bit less uh, because of the educating just takes up obviously time. And, and that's fine with me. It's invigorated sort of my, my career. Yeah. Yeah. If you can uh, help inspire and influence the community of clinicians to become, first of all, aware of the large evidence base and then help them experience what it's like, the, like the benefits of practicing through an evidence-based lens and um, the benefits for not only their clients, but themselves. I think we often forget that, that, you know, you had your epiphany and we've all had our own existential crises back in the day where there needs to be some kind of seed of doubt or some curiosity that hang on, something doesn't fit right. And there's a certain level of humility that that requires to then transition into starting to apply it, whether it's a, you know, transition with a course from um, a role model or other kind of uh, ways that we can feel, oh, now I can start implementing and practicing and experimenting with maybe things that I was doing uh, in a different way. Then it's like, oh, we have so much more freedom now. We have so much more capacity to help people in a more holistic way. It's for us as clinicians, it feels a bit more satisfying. What, what's been, what was your experience like during that transition, we'll say from the uh, biomechanic focused lens towards a more biopsychosocial lens yeah it i mean i enjoyed it 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 was i enjoyed being more positive about the human organism on the whole because i think the other the kinesiopathological way of looking at it it's looking at a human as is very 
sensitive or I mean, we are sensitive, but it just didn't make it seem like we were that adaptable and resilient. And, and truly once you see it in the other lens, it's like, wow, we're amazing. Like, it's so cool. We can adapt to. And so I felt positive, just more positive about everything rather than telling people everything that's wrong with them. I changed to telling everything that's right with them. And uh, just seeing, I would say how, how good clinical outcomes were with this other way of looking at things and how much happier people seem to be with the freedom to move how they wanted to move and to do what they wanted to do. And, and just to see people's happiness with that. And, and maybe I'm biased in my own head and I'm maybe selection bias of, of outcome measures, but like, it just certainly seemed to me I was having more clinical success um, practicing in a more optimistic way versus the negative way um yeah that's, and, that's and hard then, to to like fathom as well because you get similar for some like you see it working right you see the kinesiopathological model still getting outcomes it's not we're not saying that you know there's only negative outcomes so right. you've had we've all had clients and and people we've seen we've we've helped through that lens it's more the other added benefits that i and i interrupted you sorry no, no, that's, and that's another point too, right? Is I'm not saying it didn't work before, you know, it's just what I've learned in the end is that it was probably working for reasons other than what I thought, you know, yeah. it, it wasn't because they were, you know, less genuvalgum, uh, it, it was other things. I mean, so yeah, I, I think that's an important thing too. It's, it's not that we, it wasn't working before. It's just probably the narratives we're giving of why it's working or what they need to do was probably not that correct. And, but it still was, you know, generally working, Mm, uh, but it, it feels so much more at night. It feels better to put my head down on the pillow knowing that I'm probably giving people a less wrong narrative (laughs) now, you know? Yeah. It's a, we can uh, rely on the more evidence-based narratives that we're giving. As you said, it's, it's a, generally less wrong and still can be, if not the same outcomes, better outcomes for, for clients. And w- at that time, what, what helped you? So you mentioned that you were curious, you had that, uh, that strength to seek out information, to, to read more, to, to learn and, and get all the, um, the research you, you could under your belt. What were the other factors in, in your experience and even with people you see, clinicians you see at your courses that can help them through that transition phase because it seems like it can be quite a jump from university teaching and a kinesiopathological bias towards that biopsychosocial lens it helped you yeah that's a that's a really tough question i think you know that's that's you know some people that take my course they'll say well if i'm not fixing their posture what am i doing then you know or you know if i'm not fixing the asymmetry what am i what am i doing then you know and it's a good question, but I think there's so much we can do. The transition, is it easy? No. And and what helped me? Just plugging away every day, trying, you know, and sometimes I'd fall flat on my face trying a new way to practice and, and delivering a new narrative. And I'd fumble my words and I wouldn't get it right, but I just would get back up and try it again. And, uh, you know, I think that's all I really kept doing was keep trying. And then the more you you know, read and the more you hear and the more you say it yourself, the better you get at it and the more you understand it yourself. And then 
you start to see better outcomes with people and receiving it well. And I think it just builds them. It's, it's a momentum thing, but by no means is it easy. Um, you know, it's, it's a difficult transition to make because I think, and here's what it comes down to for me. I think the difficulty is when you practice in a kinesiopathological model, there's certainty, right? So you can just look at someone and go, Oh, I know what's wrong. You have shoulder protraction, you know, or scapular dyskinesis or, you know, you have flat feet, you know, you can just look at them, watch them move or just watch them stand. And you can say something definitive, black and white. Here's what we're going to do. The thing with the biopsychosocial model is there's a lot of uncertainty. And so you're left with, well, I don't really know what's driving, you know, the main thing contributing to your problem. There's this, this, and this, and this, and maybe more that could be contributing to it. And you know, which of these things do you feel like you'd like to maybe address? You know, there's so much more uncertainty. And I think as practitioners, that's unsettling. I, I think practitioners like that definitive, you know, you've got a trigger point or you have asymmetry or you have bad posture, you have faulty biomechanics, and then just fixing that, you know, the biopsychosocial model, there's so much uncertainty, you know, and unless someone fell off a ladder or they got hit by a car or, you know, it, their leg twisted in a tackle, you know, then there's these definitive mechanisms of injuries and you have an exact answer for them. But if someone does not have a trauma or a mechanism of injury, it's uncertainty. And I, I, I think that's a big realm of this where I think a lot of people struggle. And, you know, I've, I think once you get comfortable with it, you can just embrace it. And it's actually nice. It's like, well, we don't know exactly what the main thing is or even all the things contributing um, but hey, there's lots of things we could try, you know, so it's it to me, it's almost liberating because you know, I don't know, maybe I, I just sucked at it, but I never really was able to change anybody's posture. You know, I, I never straightened out someone's scoliosis and um, none of these things, you know, these these black and white goals we're trying to fix in a kinesiopathological model. So um, I find it liberating and and. Yeah, I would hope people sort of just get through the uncomfortable, uh, the, you know, the discomfort of being in uncertainty and eventually get comfortable there. There's a, oh, what's her first name? I can't remember. Simpkin, S-I-M-P-K-I-N. She writes, uh, she's written in collaboration with some other medical doctors, some great stuff on uncertainty and, and being comfortable and thriving in uncertainty in a medical setting. And that's some good stuff to read, which I really enjoyed and helped me. There was a, the ubiquity of uncertainty in low back pain care by Costa in 2022, just recently. And then I think you're mentioning A.L. Simkin that I might pop in the group if it's not already there. But tolerating uncertainty is the, the paper there. So uh, yeah. that, that term of uncertainty is, is really, uh, I feel, a lot more common now. It's being talked about. Mm -hmm. And just like this discussion right now, we're acknowledging that it's not going to quick transition it's a process of trying and making mistakes along the way and then getting feedback and then getting better at it because yeah it, it's it must be quite hard for a lot of clinicians to to transition when we all crave that certainty we all want the answers for a client coming in with with pain with a pain problem we want a solution for them so it's yeah i, I love that you you were honest about it it's it's not it's not easy no, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. And it takes a lot of um, support and community. And that's 
that's where courses such as yours can can help. And and your focus is generally seems to be on exercise prescription and, and movement based. Is that what's uh, you know, to be com- completely honest, I, I named my course, you know, Exercise and Movement in Modern Clinical Practice. I kind of named it that. The, the exercise part is huge. It's, a, it's at least half the course. Um, but, you know, that's the sexy lure to get you in. Half of the course is about, you know, biopsychosocial model, person-centered care, uh, evidence-based medicine, and, you know, communication, the power of our words, you know, all these more broad things in modern what i would call modern msk practice these foundational concepts so and while we look at those concepts in the course we're kind of doing it through the lens of you know exercise and movement prescription so if you're talking about person-centered care a nice example would be you're saying to the the patient or the person here are four exercises that my experience and the evidence say would help your case which of these do you connect with which of these do you think you would you know see yourself actually doing so it's a nice you know we talk about person-centered care and then that put it into an example i would use you know exercise as an example but Oh no! Again, I'm I'm just on this huge push to get evidence-based medicine and biopsychosocial person-centered care out there. I so the course, though titled and may look like on the surface, it's all about exercise and movement prescription. Uh, it's definitely about the foundational concepts of what I would call modern, you know, musculoskeletal practice. Um, you know, I just feel as strongly about them as I, as I do movement. You know, uh, I think the science is that you can't argue with the science that the more a, mu- a human moves with adequate recovery, the healthier they are. It, it, it's a very blanket statement, but I, I, I would be I think someone would be hard pressed trying to prove that statement wrong. You know, as long as the person's getting adequate recovery and, you know, and the global health benefits of just moving, it doesn't have to be fancy, doesn't have to be in a gym with equipment, just get outside and go for a walk, you know, anyways, I'm going on about this, but you made a great point that we can still have, you know, an exercise bias and help people move more. However, with the same lens that we just talked about, the kinesiopathological model, and even though it you know, from the outside, it looks like a quote unquote active approach on the inside. It's very much directed and um, governed, we'll say, by the clinician that they're imposing their own beliefs and biases on the person without that shared decision making happening. So I think that's an important note to to make that it's, it's more about the, the lens and the framework, the philosophy and we're using movement and exercise as a, as a way to um, like in the, the how to do it. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's there's more of the underlying background information that that really matters of the biopsychosocial person centered approach. Exactly, like that's I'm not blindly going in and telling everyone to move. You know, it's like there's so much more I'm doing. It's just that's you know a part of it. You know, and and a, and a big part of it. I I do again. It's my personal bias that I think every human could use more movement. Uh, except there's a few, you know, type A elite athletes out there who, you know, sort of have they have reds or something, relative energy deficiency syndrome, something like that. They need to back off a bit. But otherwise, I, I see pretty much every human would benefit from moving more and getting more fresh air. Yep, that's it. It's um, it's so uh, easy to go fall back into the like using exercise as a fixer approach of like fixing what's wrong with someone. Yeah. Um, and one of the questions that comes up, uh, I'm not sure with with your experience, 
in my experience, it's like, what's the best, best exercise for XYZ condition? And I think that makes sense if you've come from um, being assessed that way in, in physical therapy school, whatever that might be, massage, uh, exercise physiology, physio, chiro, osteo, generally it's like condition specific. And then transitioning to person specific requires a bit of a, a, a step and a, a journey. So how would you go about maybe if someone asked you, you know, what's the best exercise for low back pain, for disc herniation? How would you respond? Oh, I would, you know, it's a, it's a good question. It, you know, I think the best answer is really my philosophy would be the best exercise is the one that gets done. And, you know, ultimately, you know, the more you see the research, like, for instance, with back, low back pain, since you brought that up, there's a lot of research showing that walking performs as well as specific core exercise. You know, in the end, it ends up just being basically, you know, getting that person off the couch, getting them back into life, getting them back to work. That's another thing. Basically, just getting the person back going. So, again, whatever exercise they're going to do is probably the best one. There was a fantastic uh, paper in is titled just simply titled tendinopathy and it was a bunch of the top people in the world uh jill cook i think was on it no i can't remember it was tendinopathy and it was in nature reviews last year i think and for karen karen management of tendinopathy you know obviously there's a lot of very specific loading stuff you know heavy slow resisted through a full range right now seems to be um the the leader in you know, movement or exercise for tendinopathy. However, it was interesting. Their final recommendation was um, provide principles of loading and options of exercises. And perhaps the best program is the one that gets done. So here you have the world leaders in this crazy comprehensive paper on tendinopathy in the end saying, you know, give them principles of loading and options and perhaps the best program is just the one that gets done and you know i've seen other ones compare eccentrics for tendinopathy versus progressive tendon loading through a whole range of motion and though the conclusion of the paper was progressive tendon loading is superior to eccentric if you look at the data eccentric still worked really well <laughs> you know so it was just progressive tendon loading worked a little bit better um so, you know, ultimately, in the end, I think the best answer is, you know, the best exercise is the one that gets done. I think for certain things, yes, there might be more specific things like osteoporosis. You probably want to get them weight bearing, though it's still shown resistance exercise that helps, too, even if it's not weight bearing. And, um, you know, tendinopathy, the evidence would say that heavy slow resistance would be the best but um you know there's a recent paper last year forgive me for the name pronunciation it was agregard or argregard uh, and they found moderate uh, resistance at 55% 1RM was just as effective as 90% 1RM. So I'm kind of hanging on to that paper because to get people to do 55% 1RM is a lot easier in clinic than than the the old standard of 70% uh, 1RM. So um, yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the true questions would be when do we need to be specific? And, and you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of clear answers for that. In the, in the evidence base, I think there's some, um, but I think what we're starting to see more and more is, is, you know, there's a lot to be said for just getting someone doing something, you know, whatever they're going to do. Yeah, specific to to them. 
rather than just their condition because you can get the same, I, I guess, diagnosis on paper, but different context, different demands, different time availability, different exercise preferences, different uh, presentation of symptoms, even, even though they have maybe the same imaging results, different mechanisms of injury. So there's so many other factors involved in that decision-making. I think it's, it's, again, tempting to have that certainty that we talked about of like, you know, this is the best exercise for this condition. Certainty. Clarity, no confusion, no uncertainty, no anxiety, yeah. anxiety-free practice. That's that's yeah. my next course. But it's not, <laughs> it's just it's just not covering all bases. It's not uh, right. appreciating the complexity of a human, of the individual. You know, which I love what you just all of what you just said is exactly. And I talk about it all the time. I think one of the most important things in practice is finding out who the person in front of you is. You know, and that would just what you're just saying in terms of person-centered sort of choice of exercise. I mean, you got to find out who this person is in front of you. Are they a gym rat? Are they a sedentary couch potato? You know, are they an avoider? Like, do they really worry and catastrophize or are they like, ah, whatever, a little pain and they push through it. You know, who's that person in front of you, I think is one of the most important things. And I, I use the term all the time, N equals one, you know, sample size of one, you know, it's, it's everything is that each person is so individual, even if they have the exact same um, diagnosis or whatever you want to label it, a label uh, as the next person, but they're going to, you're going to handle the cases totally differently based on who that person is. That's it. It's um, looking at it from a zoomed out lens rather than just that particular uh, diagnosis because we're considering their preferences. And sometimes uh, to challenge a lot of the my own biases, some people prefer core exercises and some people <laughs> prefer some of those specific exercises because they connect them to a community of people in a group class. And uh, I'm going to call out Pilates, but Pilates doesn't have to be that way, but whatever that group class is. And there's other reasons for them enjoying and preferring an exercise that maybe goes against our own bias. And that's important to consider as well. Yeah, definitely. And curious with the, what you've come across in, in your um, work as an educator for clinicians undertaking more of a BPS approach, what are some of the, the challenges that you hear in applying that more biopsychosocial approach into the constraints of private practice. What have you heard? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest ones would be, you know, expectations. Um, expectations of the person coming in for care. You know, I think societally we're still in this place where everyone expects a biomedical model, a kinesiopathological model where they're going to come in, they're going to be told something specific is wrong and that the person's going to fix them. You know, BPS and person-centered care, it's, it's, is not that. So they're coming in with these expectations that they're going to be told, you know, here's this thing that's wrong with you and I'm going to fix it. And here's how I'm going to fix it. Here's the plan, you know, and I think that's how people come in. So when you start saying to people, you know, oh, it's okay that you have flat feet or, you know, it's, it's okay that you have protracted shoulders. Uh, you know, it could be, all these other things, you know, like your dog is sick for the last two weeks and you haven't slept at all and you're really upset about it and you're not sleeping. Well, these things can affect how you physically feel and your knee, you know, and so people are kind of, huh? <laughs> so I think we're, we're kind of going up against these expectations, you know, and also this whole 
they're going to someone to be fixed. And I think, you know, truly in an evidence-based model and, and that involves person-centered care, we should be empowering a person to manage them, their own case, you know, so self-management. And uh, I don't think a lot of people want that, you know. I think people want to come and be fixed. They don't want to, um, you know, put effort in on their own time uh, to do stuff, which is often, you know, would be the advice of a, of someone practicing in a, a BPS model and a person-centered model. Um, so I think that would be one of the biggest, biggest hurdles or barriers to implementing this is it, it, it generally society doesn't jive with it. You know, they're coming for almost call it the magic pill treatment uh, or they're coming to see the wizard who's going to do something with their hands or with their needles or with their machine to magically make it better. It's like, what do you mean my dog is part of this, you know, um, when in actual fact, yeah, you know, that's, that's a huge part of it, you know? And, and I, so I think that's a huge part of the problem with, with implementing it. And, you know, I think in terms of adoption on the whole, I think for practitioners, it goes back to that uncertainty. I just, I just think people, struggle like well what am i doing if i don't if i'm not fixing these black and white things you know and if i may i might go on a bit here i think why the kinesiopathological model maybe came to being was you know it's really easy for any of us if if we're half decent at our jobs to have someone come into our office and to look at them look at their posture and spot asymmetries i mean yeah, I could do it to every human that out there that, you know, also you could have someone do a squat and you could pretty much pick apart 98% of human squats, you know, maybe two, 2% of the population does a beautiful squat. You wouldn't say anything about, you know, so I think it's just really easy. I think it's easy when someone walks in here, let me look at you. Let me watch you move. Boom. Here's some answers. It's so easy. And you've got these answers. They've come for answers. You're given them answers. And then you've got a path. Okay, we're going to change this. And so it's easy. Right? I think that's why, in my opinion, this is all just my opinion, that that kinesiopathological model or the, the quality movement, movement quality model came to being. And it's why everybody practices it. Not everybody. Most people are practicing that matter is because it's easy. And you have answers. The problem with sort of a biopsychosocial model, person-centered model, it's like you don't always have the answers. You're just giving them a hypothesis and saying, well, there's lots of things that could be contributing. You know, here are some of what I think could be, you know, are there some of these you connect with and that you'd want to put some work on and maybe changing them or influencing them? You know, it's a lot more uncertain. And I, I think as a practitioner, that's unnerving maybe. And, and as because you want you have this ego, right? You want to give them a reason why they're they're experiencing what they're experiencing. Um, you know, I think the evidence at this point would say we don't always know, you know, and we we often don't know unless there was a mechanism of injury, unless someone fell off a ladder, got hit by a car, you know. So yeah, I I think for those reasons it's you run into trouble implementing it because of these these expectations of the people coming in. They're they're used to being told a black and white reason, and and then it's hard for practitioners to want to adopt it because like, geez, there's a lot of uncertainty. What am I even doing then when someone comes in? And so those would be, I think, the two the two sort of biggest problems, as it were. And and let's not let's not kid around here. Being told something fancy like 
you know, this vertebrae is translated a little forward. Like we got it. I mean, it's sexy. It sounds good. So people are buying it like, whoa, this guy's, you know, young. He's got his diplomas or his degrees on the wall. And like he's trained, he's regulated. He's telling me this, this is fancy. Okay, I got to do this, get this firing. And we won't go there, will we? Let's not go there. Anyways, um, yeah, I'm going on. You, you made so many great points. You've just um, uh, put into words my feelings in the the past few weeks of seeing a lot of the anatomical jargon pop up on my news feeds and it's so attractive it's there's that there's that buy-in i think it's it's easier to sell if i may say the Mm -hmm. the approach because you've got a problem that's very clear and distinct and then you've got clear and certain answers so why would anyone change we need a a bit of experiential learning would be we'd need what you mentioned at the start, that doubt. And I definitely had the curiosity in that uh, existential crisis in my own journey. And I think we need those seeds of curiosity and, and, and doubt to start questioning if this is actually the problem. Because if it was the actual problem, then we would have very certain answers at the first place. And it, we need that, uh, I guess, that space between, you know, this is the problem and this is a solution. We need a bit to zoom out and say, well, what is the actual problem? How do we know that? And let's let's observe it from like different angles. What what about you know X Y Z? Or what about if we do that solution and then they get the opposite effect? What does that mean? Then looking at it, we need that curiosity, and and I think clinicians need it as well as clients and and patients and the layperson. And mm-hmm. easier said than done, though. <laughs> Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, where's the, I'll talk about private practice. I'm not saying necessarily uh, public practice, like, but private practice, if you're a successful uh, healthcare practitioner, you're booked solid, you know, your people seem to be happy coming to see you. Why would you change? You know, this, there's not much impetus for change there because people like you, they're coming, they like your shtick. And so why would you change your shtick? You know? So, but for me, I like to sleep at night. You know, I want to be, you know, the most evidence-based up to date. I don't want to be spewing out some narrative that's complete poppycock, you know, even though it might be working, but it's just not working because of what I'm saying, you know. Um, and so I, I don't blame those practitioners for not having a doubt, <laughs> you know. It's, you know, it's hard. And I think that's why change is going to take a while, uh, you know, around the globe in terms of practicing in a more evidence-based way. But, but I think it's coming. Um, oh, there's something else you said too that triggered something for me and I can't remember. Ah, I can trigger you anytime, Marcus, during this conversation. But uh, if, if it comes up, just yeah, yeah. Um, on, on this note, we're, we're talking about buy-in and, and marketing and, and this approach can be quite a challenge um, the and, and I, as you said, I feel like the ship is very slowly turning, and we've got a little bit more um, examples and role models such as yourself and, and leaders in this space showing and demonstrating this is a better approach, and these are some ways to make it easier for that transition. Um, I feel like it's a much better than it was years ago, um, and and on this point, then are still some common misunderstandings and miscommunication. And I've myself been guilty in my social media content on the black or white dichotomous thinking of, you know, what BPS actually is and um, what this approach actually means and how it might translate. And long form content like this helps. But what are some of the common myths, misconceptions, misunderstandings that, that you've come across with 
a BPS approach with, with all that we've been talking about? Yeah, I think, well, before I even say anything, because I, I, again, like to give credit where credit is due. And, you know, this year a paper came out and lead author was Ben Cormack. Uh, There's Peter Stilwell, uh, Sabrina, I can't remember her last name, and Joe Gibson. And it was on the biopsychosocial model. Basically, it was like, what was it originally? What was Engel's original version or vision? You know, what was his thinking? you know, where is it at today and, and where could we take it tomorrow? I just thought it was a sensational paper and I think it'd be silly to have this conversation without dropping that paper And because I think it's it's a must read. It really is. It's a must read for any healthcare practitioner. Um, you know, and they talk about sort of the mis, mis, misapplications or misconceptions. I think for me, you know, they had a few, but I think the two biggest ones, uh, one is this... Uh, focus on the neuro, on the psycho, in that people sometimes when they're practicing a biopsychosocial, you know, if there's not a falling off the ladder, if there's not a definitive, you know, mechanical cause, I think some people go a little bit too much to only looking at the psychological. You know, I think in their paper, they termed it neuromania. I thought that was a funny term. Um, so I think that's one thing where maybe it's being a bit misapplied is like, just because there isn't a, a physical cause, mechanism of injury, that it means it's a psychological thing. I think that's maybe a, a way it's, you know, getting misapplied in practice um, as opposed to thinking of everything, the social, the other biological things like sleep or nutrition, et cetera. Um, you know, that would be a big one. And then, and then the other one, which, you know, they mentioned as well, and, and I would think as well, is people going, okay, well, it's not – posture or asymmetry well what are the other factor is it and so you they look at these other biopsychosocial factors and they're still trying to blame one biopsychosocial factor as the problem so it's like still kind of that biomedical framework of picking one thing that's the main driver versus you know the acknowledgement that the human experience is almost an infinite number of different factors interplaying at the same moment simultaneously to produce the human experience. So I think there's a little bit of uh, hmm, narrowing down to focused, like, okay, sure, it's not something per se like a genuvalgum or a, a glute not firing. <laughs> I'm going to just say that, but oh, my goodness, let's not go there. Um but it's a many things, and it, it's a lot of things contributing together as opposed to, oh, it's because you're not sleeping. That's why you have this pain. You know, there's there's the emotion of the dog being sick. There's there's also the not sleeping. There's also the extra load at work during this tough time. You know, your kid got in trouble at school as well. I mean, geez, it's coming on. You know, so I'd say those are the, for me, the things where I think there's a little bit of misapplication of the biopsychosocial model. Um yeah, I, I, is that sort of what you were getting at? Yeah, definitely. The um, misunderstanding of, of what this approach means, it's so e easy to go back into that biomedical approach where there's finding a source or a driver of pain and it, it takes a bit of time to process that. And I think um, acknowledging the that it can be difficult to communicate on social media where there is that black or white dichotomous uh, buy-in, you know, the, the marketing messages that are like, this is certainty. This is how you do it. This is the one way, the best right. exercise to fix X, Y, Z. 
transitioning from from that approach into more of the holistic complex systems approach of um you know it's more about how much it matters and when it matters and this is an example of when it might matter more this is where it might matter less and it really depends on the context and the person that's like you've lost <laughs> the majority of of you know listeners readers and followers yeah yeah i mean you're nailing it right it's just not it's not sexy <laughs> you can't you know these definitive lose 60 pounds by doing this you know it's not that it's not sexy so and, and it's you know it's the same thing you can't have one exercise for tendinopathy it's this n equals one situation where basically who is the person in front of me and that's like such a core core piece of my practice and what i believe and i think is effective you know sort of bps model or person-centered care is is really it's all about that person and on this topic of we're talking about social media and, and misinformation or misconceptions, what have you come across? What are some of the, the common claims we'll talk in clinician land and then maybe also client land? Um, and how can we as healthcare professionals, if we're looking at reducing harm or, or doing less harm with the Hippocratic Oath and we're looking at providing that more ethical, evidence-based care and communicating that message if that's a part of our role how can we respond to some of the misinformation the misinformed claims that we hear yeah and i think this is important i i think misinformation is it's interesting right there's there's misinformation you can control and misinformation you can't control so i think for me you know you're hitting a bit on the stuff we can't control per se which is misinformation we see out there on social media. I think it's worth mentioning before even addressing that. The misinformation we can control, I think is so important. What is that? It's the information we're providing to individuals that we see in practice, but also that we put out there, whether in a blog, a podcast, a social media post, et cetera. I think first and foremost, you know, take care of your own, your own yard and take pride in not providing any misinformation yourself. And I think, you know, that's where there's the most change that could be made easily by all of us. If none of us provided misinformation, there wouldn't be any, right? So on an individual basis, I think it's up to us as professionals to question ourselves and say, is this actually fact what I'm putting out here as fact? You know, because if it isn't, I should probably say in my opinion, or, you know, it's my theory that, you know, something along those lines. So I, I think more so than what to do about other misinformation, I think, number one, first and foremost, we should all be looking at ourselves in the mirror and asking, are we providing misinformation? And that could just be verbally what you're saying to someone in your practice in a session, you know, and really, are you sure, you know, that that's the reason they have knee pain? Because you're saying it like you're sure. So you, you should be. Otherwise, say, in my opinion. You know, in terms of the misinformation that is out of our control, i.e. what other people are posting out there, if I was a confrontational person and I didn't mind conflict, I would definitely take it upon myself to, you know, reply to any misinformation I see. Um, I don't because I'm anti-conflict. I don't have that in me. Um, you know, I think the best thing a person could do if they had the time is to retort or reply with evidence-based reply. You know, so if you see something that's, you know, totally not evidence-based, it's just belief-based crap. And the best thing to do would be to like reply to it with, here's the evidence saying 
the opposite of what you're saying where you know do you have evidence to support what you're saying you know ha just keep it civil i think the main thing when you're sort of getting into these debates or discussions is to be civil and and no one's going to learn from you if you're attacking them you know everyone just immediate you know, the defense goes on and there's nothing going to change, you know. So if you go about it in a polite, kind way, you know, hopefully there'd be change. And, and I think that'd be great if all of us, if you see misinformation, counter it with good evidence-based information. You know, I got to tell you, there was, I, maybe you saw it on Twitter about two weeks ago, there was a thread on posture and ergonomics at, at a desk. And it went viral. It was spreading all over the world. Da, 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 da. And it was non-evidence-based. It was belief-based. And, uh, you know, MSK Twitter, Ortho Twitter, jumped all over it and was like, this is crap. You know, this is bollocks. And everyone was saying, like, this is not evidence-based. So, But I was surprised. No one actually wrote anything. But I went and looked at the guy's bio. And he wasn't even a healthcare practitioner. He was a copywriter. And he just had written a thread on his personal beliefs about posture. It was like a nine tweet thread and uh, people were like retweeting it around the world thinking he was some healthcare practitioner providing, you know, evidence-based info. So here's what we're up against. You know, here's some copywriter who just made up his own little thread. He was saying things like, we're all going to be crippled by 2030 if we don't sit this way. And, you know, it was, it was the craziest, most dramatic things and boom that hit how many people in the world and they believe it they're not going to look and see oh he's a copywriter he doesn't know what he's talking about you know so we've got people not even healthcare practitioners but just random copywriters you know spreading misinformation so i mean like oh we're up against it that's never mind all the misinformation coming from actual regulated healthcare professions you know so but uh, but I truly believe, and this is me just in my passion, and, and it's what I want to be doing, is I think we should counter misinformation with evidence-based information. And, you know, I wrote a blog on arthritis recently, sort of counteracting the whole wear and tear thing uh, being the main reason, main thing behind arthritis. You know, anything we can produce, any content we can produce that educates people. And, and if you see someone else's work, drop your ego. And if it's good stuff, share it spread it you know if someone has something good spread it this is why i like pumping out like ben cormack's paper on biopsychosis it was amazing spread it you know any good blog you see spread it good podcast spread it get the good information spreading you know even if it's not what you produced you know put the ego aside and just get on team spreading evidence-based info that's it it's um i really love the focus on what we can do within our control because there's so much that we uh I guess can't control when someone else is producing misinformation. There's a, a quote that I'm going to misquote where you know, a, a, a lie can travel around the world twice before the truth is putting on their shoelaces or their boots. <laughs> um, so it's like along that line that it's, it's going to happen where there's not enough filters out there for good quality, high quality, less wrong information. So if we can counter it with, with evidence-based information and share it, to create that community and collaborate with other people. I think that can make our jobs a lot easier that we've at least contributed as much as we can within our control towards spreading good, helpful, useful evidence-based info. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, again, not everyone is on like really good at producing content on social media. And I'm not, um, you know, but even if the, just a practitioner who 
you know, took your course, if they just made an effort to not spread any information in their practice to the people coming to see them, great, one less person spreading misinformation, you know, and it's as simple as saying, in my opinion, in front of something, as opposed to saying it as fact. Um, you know, I think it's tough to produce content. I, again, I'm not great at it, but uh, at the very least, in your interactions with the people who are coming to see you, don't give them misinformation, you know, just give them accurate. And if you don't know, say it, you know, like, I don't know, there's no certainty around this, etc. So, yeah. Qualifiers, like, in my opinion, based on my current understanding, and, and on top of that, what's helpful is revisiting some of the old claims that you may have made and being like, I used to think XYZ. Now I've read and I've updated my stance. And just you saying that can make a huge difference on not only like clients, your you know audience and your followers, but also your colleagues. They'd be like, oh, wow, that's like, maybe I should revisit and reflect on what I've been putting out in the past. So then people know, I've, you know, we've changed our stance and we've normalized being wrong and changing our stances. I love that. I, I actually haven't like used that too much, but as soon as you said it, I just loved it. And like, you know, I'd like to do that more in my practice. I don't, I don't say, I used to think this and now I think this, I kind of just say, here's what I think now, you know? So I think that's great to be, uh, express your humility and say that and show that you're trying to, you know, be open and, and open to change. And yeah. Yeah, that's it. And you've done it already in, in other ways. Um, already through this podcast, looking at your your journey, I think it's really helpful for for listeners to hear. Yeah. Um. So if we were to round off the podcast with a final question, looking at um, that implementation and application uh, for clinicians that are starting to experiment and try to apply a BPS person centered approach in their private practice, and they're met with perhaps some challenges within that workplace context mm. or with other clinicians, even if it's not within that private practice, but maybe with referral systems. Mm. Um, what's been your experience with navigating different narratives and approaches? And I expect a quick, very simple, certain answer from, no, I'm just joking. There's no, <laughs> there's no black and white, but I'm, I'm curious to hear, how would you approach the scenarios where there's differing na narratives and approaches from colleagues? Yeah, I think that's a huge challenge when you work in an environment where there's lots of different people and, and there are different narratives and stuff. I mean, I hate to say it. I mean, well, the first thing to do would be to try and, I think, try and create change within your little community, which is your clinical you know, setting uh, or the hospital setting, whatever setting you're in, maybe try and be the person who initiates change there. And maybe you're creating an in-service or you're saying, you know, I took this course or, hey, I read this paper and you just get, hey, why don't we start a paper sharing thing? And like you start sharing papers that, you know, the papers you're starting to share are counter to some of the narratives or even outright like, hey, let's have a, a coffee, coffee group and let's organize this. Let's make this a, a thing and we get together and, and chat about stuff. And and maybe that's a, a space where you can bring about bring up in conversation the things you're learning and the things you're wanting to move towards and make it about you versus about them if you make it about them often people get defensive if you say you know here are some things i'm learning and i want to incorporate and you know it's got me thinking and you know it's all about you then people don't get as defensive it, it they 
then you're leaving it up to them though to be introspective and be like huh that's pretty cool what daniel's doing with you know he's learning some stuff geez he had some good papers there like maybe i should question what i'm doing you know so you're leaving it at that in a worst case scenario i believe life's short and i think if if you're truly not jiving with those around you and and their narratives in the workplace you're in i personally would say i would start quietly looking for a different setting and with people you connect with because i think as practitioners it's important for us to practice in a way that you know we're aligned with no pun intended um that we're aligned with that uh makes us feel good and then if other people around you are practicing way it's just infectious and it'll just make going to work great and the people coming to see you will benefit the most. And I think that in the end is the bottom line, isn't it? I, I, I think that's what we're wanting. So, you know, if you're ultimately in a situation where it's, you know, totally different narratives than what you want or believe in and the evidence says, and, you know, it, it might be too much of a thing for you to change on your own. Maybe it's not in your personality to create these coffee groups or share papers and stuff. Uh, you might just want to start looking around for, for a, a setting where you are with like-minded peers. I don't know. That's kind of might seem like a cop-out, but it's not. It's, it, I think it's just staying true to yourself is what it is. It's important. It goes back to that, what we can control, what's within our control, within our context. And we, we can't force other people to change their minds and, you know, change the way they've been practicing for 10, 20 years and getting results, there's there's no reason for them to change in, in their context. So respecting other people's opinions and maybe facilitating that curiosity with uh, reviewing papers or talking about, you know, what, what you've learned and what you're changing, um, trying to inspire that, um, that curious openness, questioning um, and through role modeling. And if it's not working, it's very much an option to seek communities where people are perhaps more aligned with the way that you want to practice and the kind of research and evidence base that you've come across. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that was awesome. That was really cool to hear your insights. And um, as mentioned before this podcast, having these conversations from people around the world is really inspiring and invigorating um, to, to me personally, and I'm sure to a lot of listeners. So Marcus, appreciate your, your time. And uh, before we wrap up, is there anything I've missed from the conversation no that's it i mean i loved i love chatting with you it's it's so nice connecting with a you know a colleague who's like-minded and i think it's good to talk with people who aren't like-minded but it sure is nice and like you say invigorating and it's just nice to know you're not alone and and to keep the batteries charged and to do this work so no it was a pleasure chatting with you yeah, right and for the listeners who are keen to hear more about you and your, your work where can they contact you uh, my website is marcusblumensat.com and then mainly uh, social media. I'm not great, but I'm on Twitter. Um, you know, it's funny off the top of my head. I don't even know my handle. How is that possible? You're not the only um, one on Twitter. I forgot mine. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm at Blumensat on Twitter. And so that's sort of the social media of choice for me. Although Elon Musk is doing a lot right now. I, I hope Twitter survives. I bloody love it. Yeah. Fingers crossed. And yeah. So, and website and you've got courses as well coming up and looking at next yeah, year projects sp- yeah exactly not till the spring i'm just working on some stuff over the winter so no teaching till the spring and yeah i do del- deliver them live online and uh, some in person too but mainly live online and and yeah in the works is uh, i'm getting a self-paced online uh, version 
version on the go, but I don't know when that, that probably won't be done until the end of this coming year, but yeah, that's in the works. Exciting, mate. Can't wait yeah. and really love this conversation and really valued it. So appreciate your time and until the next one, Marcus. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all you're doing.